Guantanamo and in Fallujah, Iraq. DeSantis's time at Guantanamo is coming under scrutiny after a former prisoner named Mansour Daifi revealed that DeSantis had personally witnessed him being force-fed and tortured. Other prisoners have backed up Adaifi's count. Last month, DeSantis denied authorizing force-feeding at Guantanamo. The Washington Post did a big deep dive on this today, actually, about what you did out there. One of the things they said was that you authorize the use of force feeding. That's some of the true. yeah, that's not true. Yeah, uh, any of the stuff uh, that people just to finish saying, force okay. feeding the detainees who were on hunger strike was that true? So I was a, I was a junior officer. I didn't have authority to authorize anything. Mm. There may have been a commander that would have done feeding if someone was going to die, but that was not something that I would have even had authority to do. So that's that's wrong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was Ron DeSantis last month in an interview with Piers Morgan. But in an interview five years ago, in 2018, DeSantis admitted to CBS Miami that he'd authorized force feeding. I was a legal advisor. For those that were doing. Um, the things that would happen is the thing you notice the day you get down there is for these detainees, the jihad was still ongoing. Right. And they would wage jihad any way they can. Now, they're in a facility, so it's limited, but some of the things they would do, they would do hunger strikes. And you actually had three detainees that committed suicide with hunger strikes. So everything at that time was legal in nature, one way or another. So the commander wants to know, well, how do I combat this? So one of the jobs of the legal advisor would be like, hey, you actually can force feed. Here's what you can do. Here's kind of the rules of that. That was Ron DeSantis in 2018, as he was running for governor in Florida. Well, with DeSantis expected to soon launch a run for the White House, we're joined by former Guantanamo prisoner Mansoura Daifi. At the age of 18, he left his home in Yemen to do research in Afghanistan. Shortly before he was scheduled to return home, he was kidnapped by Afghan warlords and sold to the CIA after the September 11th attacks. He was jailed and tortured in Afghanistan, then transported to the U.S. military prison at Guantanamo in 2002, where he was held without charge for 14 years, many of those years in solitary confinement. Mansour Adaifi now joins us from his home in Belgrade, Syria. In 2021, he published a memoir titled Don't Forget Us Here, Lost and Found at Guantanamo. Mansour Adaifi, welcome back to Democracy Now! Hey, hi, Amy. Uh, nice to see you again. Good morning, America. It's great to have you with us. You're actually speaking to the world right now um, at democracynow.org. You were detainee 441. Explain your connection to the current Florida governor, DeSantis. Uh, yeah, that back to 2006. As you know, like, let me give a brief uh, introduction. So well, why we went in hunger strike in the first place? As you know, we were transferred to Guantanamo, spent year, uh, years without, without any kind, like, until now, without kind, like, charges or rights and so on. By the end of 2002, General Jeffrey Miller arrived and he turned the, 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 the Guantanamo into an uh, experimenting lab. And the situation got only worse every month and every year. By 2005, we managed to organize like a mass hunger strike that embarrassed the U.S. government. The Kamba administration at that time tried to negotiate with us to stop the hunger strikes so they can improve the living condition in the camp. We agreed. 
but it was just they were buying uh, time. By the beginning of 2006, a new medical team, a new uh, campus staff arrived. One of them was uh, a young officer, a young handsome officer who came to talk to us and told us he was there to ensure that we were being treated uh, humanely. And we talked to them about why we were a hunger strike, what, what, what were our demand. It wasn't jihad, as he said, like, and, you know, what people always try to turn our actions in Guantanamo as like a jihad or Al-Qaeda activist cell, that way you used to us all the time. So these were our demands, stop the torture. We were uh, asking for them uh, to improve the living condition in the camp, and he was talking to us and assure us that, assured us that everything will change and he will make sure that we be treated humanely. Only two months, only like, I think even less, only uh, even less two months later, we were dragged to black solitary confinement, different camps, different blocks, a new medical team arrived and they start forcing feed us. And I'm not saying no problem with the force feeding, the, the use of, of the force feeding as a mean of torture. You know, I was taken to Nunfamar uh, Black in camp, camp two. I was tied to a force feeding chair. Like I couldn't move at all, I couldn't really breathe. Guards bring piles of insure, and they started with the nurses pouring can of insure, insure one after another, like the only way like you eat. So during the feeding, a group of officers arrived with the uh, interpreters, with the interrogators, camp staff, medical staff. They were behind the fence. And I saw one of them was uh, Ron DeSantos in a, a military uniform. And he was, while, while I was screaming, yelling, because I couldn't breathe of the inshore and was like, I was bleeding because they really insert a thick tube through my nose. So I, I was like calling them, asking, and they, he was actually laughing, looking at, at the other officers and smiling. So this is my first encounter, uh, second encounter with the um, Ron DeSantos. The first before the first feeding, he came to talk to us and other prisoners. Second time, I saw him like twice while on the first feeding. And like, I would like to hi highlight really important things here. He was there, he wasn't there like to give orders. He wasn't involved directly in, in the first feeding. I didn't see him give any orders to the guards, but he was there like supervising, watching. When I asked other prisoners uh, who, who were also in the first feeding, if they saw him, they said yes. One of them, at least he told me, he sent me a message. He said he was there too. Mansour, we're also showing images of your remarkable artwork, your drawing of being force-fed as you speak. But I wanted to turn right now to um, another former Guantanamo prisoner who Democracy Now! reached last week, Ahmed Uld Abdel Aziz, who also remembers Ron DeSantis at Guantanamo. He spoke to us from Mauritania. DeSantis. He was there, that person called DeSantis, because we didn't, we didn't recognize his name until we saw him in the media. And then, then we heard about, he is now working in the Congress, a guard who was working, uh, you know, very long time ago. For us, he's a guard, you know. For the government, he's a lawyer and he came there, but he's doing the same thing as a guard because he was sided. He was siding with the guards. He was siding with the administration there. He was part of that. He was the link of that chain, chain of involvers 
people who were involved in uh, injustices, uh, wrongdoing, and uh, uh, mistreatment of detainees, uh, putting people, detainees, in degrading conditions, degrading uh, locals, because many of these blacks were not suitable for, for, for animals, not, not say about uh, humans. So that's former Guantanamo prisoner Ahmed Uld Abdel Aziz speaking from Mauritania. He was released in 2015. Um, and Mansour, you also contacted former Guantanamo prisoners via WhatsApp to see if they remembered Ron DeSantis. For our TV viewers, we're showing the screenshot of one of the people who responded to you who wished to remain anonymous. His message says in translation, quote, Yes, I remember him. He was in detention with a group of officers who hurt and tortured us a lot. May Allah publish them all. I assume it means may Allah punish them all. Um, can you talk further about how the force feeding felt? And if there were any guards who were doing this to you, or the people—you can tell us who they were—who were putting in these tubes, uh, who objected? You know, uh, there is a difference between the force feeding and using the force feeding as a mean of torture. I, I spent years on force feeding. Other Some prisoners spent between 2 to 15 years on force feeding. Daily, we get like—usually, we get like twice a day, in the morning, in the afternoon or night. Also, during Ramadan, they will do it, like, after sunset. Uh, you know, there was, like, medical professionals. They were, like, nurses, doctors. But in 2006, and if you go to—if uh, readers go to my book, I talk particularly about what happened in 2006. It was one of the worst years in Guantanamo, where DeSantis was there. They, start punishing, they started by punishing uh, prisoners in Camp 5. Then they uh, tortured the uh, hunger strikes by force-feeding. Also, Camp 4, a medium security camp was raided and detainees were shot and hospitalized. Three detainees died at this year. Then, uh, by the end of 2006, a new, a new camp wa wa was open, like Camp 6. So, in 2006, when Ron DeSantis was there during the, 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 uh, the torture by the force feeding, they really brought uh, thick tubes called uh, Fran uh, 18 French or, two, uh, or uh, 25 French with the metal tip, and they just push it on our nose. Guards used to do that too, uh, because guards and, 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 camp and, camp and medical staff sorry, were there doing the force feeding. Uh, we, I got fed five times a day. They left me all night on the force feeding chair, and they give us some kind of laxative uh, liquid in the in the in the in the in the, in the nutrition uh, liquid. So while sitting on the on the on the force feeding chair, we would shit in ourselves, and they left us like that. When they move us to solitary confinement again, they leave us only with shorts, really cold cell. And the second day they would start again, like leave us four hours. We couldn't last some for three days, five days, and we had to stop. So they ensure they bought like boxes five boxes or more and the the first feeding bag what they just pouring in shoe can ensure one after another i felt i was really drowning um on, on one of the first feeding when i was like throwing up yes randy santos was there behind the fence and camp officers they were behind the fence when i was throwing up 
the insurance was too much in my stomach. So I threw at them and they jumped back. They were killing themselves, looking at me. So I, I felt I did something at least, you know, uh, uh, worth it. So one of, one of, uh, on one of the first feeding, while I was throwing up, the tube literally came out of my mouth. I remember the nurse grabbed it from the, the tube and it's like, start to eat. You have to start to eat. So that lasts for me for five days, and I had no choice. Like I couldn't last either, like die or stop the 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 the, the hunger strike, and we stopped. Uh, I was first fed again in 2009, 2013. Other, but that time they they did it professionally, and we had no problem. We co we co cooperated cooperated with them. The only time the first feeding was used as torture in 2006. There was also another in the other years where. Some medical uh, medical team they will try to pressure us, you know, like by to, to stop the hunger strike, but not as bad as in two thousand six. In two thousand six, lawyers for another prisoner argued that the military made the force feeding process unnecessarily painful and humiliating to break the hunger strike. Um, uh, at the time, something like a hundred of the prisoners were on hunger strike. Um, I wanted to ask you why you think that um, uh, Ron DeSantis, now the governor of Florida, has hardly mentioned his time, his experience at Guantanamo in his new book, The Courage to Be Free, and also ask you about his time in Fallujah, um, which is very interesting, um, going back to Iraq. Um, you have— um, he arrived in 2007, right after he was at Guantanamo, during the surge. According to the Tampa Bay Times, DeSantis served as a senior legal advisor to the SEAL who commanded Special Operations Task Force West in Fallujah, Navy Captain Dane Thorlifson. Um, talk about the uh, legacy of Fallujah. First of all, he didn't mention much about his time in Guantanamo because we knew he was part of GTF and he was a legal advisor. And if you ask me, I think DeSantis is a cruel person. Um, I think I believe that his mission there was a cover up in, uh, to cover up what had been in, uh, in 2006. So uh, about Fallujah, I don't think I'm in a position to comment in his time there. But for for what I have read and seen, that as we all know what happened in Fallujah, like. Death of um, civilians using depleted uh, uranium, and so on. So I would like to say one word to Americans: just watch out from that from that uh, person. You know, someone who bend the truth to serve his own uh, political uh, interest. Uh, Mansoor, we're going to do a second part of this interview and post it at democracynow.org. You just wrote a comment-is-free op-ed piece in The Guardian about a Biden administration decision around the artwork of the Guantanamo prisoners, and we're going to talk about that and also show more of your images that you drew while in Guantanamo. Yes, Mansoor Daifi is a former Guantanamo prisoner. 
Detainee 441 imprisoned without charge for 14 years and seven months before being released in 2016 to Serbia. We spoke to him in Belgrade. His memoir is titled Don't Forget Us Here, Lost and Found at Guantanamo. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! currently accepting applications for a digital fellow. Go to democracynow.org for more information. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. Bedunuts Radio brings you the best music from around the world with a focus on the music from Africa and the African diaspora. Join us every Friday for global music like this. Or this. And this. Tune in to Bentonus Radio every Friday starting at 2 a.m. right here on KKFI 90.1 FM. You can also listen to the show anytime on KKFI archives at kkfi.org. Jaws of Justice Radio investigates how we can achieve justice from a system of laws deeply rooted in economic, political, and social inequality. We strive to dispel misconceptions created by the news and entertainment industries, as well as the fear-mongering of the political system. Listen in as we search out the tools needed to make our community a more just environment. Jaws of Justice Radio, Mondays at 9 a.m., right after Democracy Now! The kids want to put up a trampoline, but that old car is in the way. Why don't we give that car to Vehicles for Charity? It's great for both of us. We get rid of the car while getting a tax deduction, and KKFI gets the proceeds from the car whether it's running or not. Donate it to KKFI, Vehicles for Charity, 816-931-3122. The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Today, host Elise Max speaks with Lori Curry, founder of Missouri Prison Reform, and Tim Wallace, former correctional officer for the Missouri Department of Corrections. They will discuss conditions of incarceration in Missouri. Missouri Prison Reform is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that advocates for Missouri's incarcerated and their families by elevating their voices, advocating for their needs, and exposing harmful policies that undermine the overall goal of harm reduction, healing, and rehabilitation. It was founded after Lori Curry began to learn about prison conditions in Missouri. Lori wanted to amplify the voices of those impacted by Missouri's carceral system and advocate for better prison conditions. Missouri prison reform began being contacted by more and more people living inside prisons, as well as their families and even prison staff who want to tell their story or seek help. 
Tim Wallace has been in the criminal justice field for over 20 years. He has been a supervising CO, and his experiences taught him many lessons of teamwork, loyalty, hard work, integrity, having fun in what you do, and dedication. He talks about his experience as a correctional officer and what he believes prison administration can do to improve the prison experience. This is a fascinating hour. Please listen to better understand what our tax dollars have created and how the system can be improved for both staff and for those who spend time in prison. The reality is that most prisons are overcrowded, often dangerous, provide substandard medical and mental health care, and do virtually nothing to prepare prisoners for when they return to the free world. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. My name is Elise Max, and I am your host this morning for Jaws of Justice Radio. I am really excited to bring you some awesome guests today, and I will introduce them. Um, our first guest is Lori Curry. She is one of the hardest working women in prison advocacy and the founder of Missouri Prison Reform. Missouri Prison Reform focuses on advocating for those incarcerated in Missouri's Department of Corrections by elevating their voices, advocating for their needs, and exposing harmful policies that undermine our overall goal of harm reduction, healing, and rehabilitation. You can find out more about Missouri Prison Reform at moprisonreform.org. And today, as we have a conversation with Lori. Our second guest is Tim Wallace. Tim is from Kansas City and a former corrections officer at Chillicothe Correctional Center which is one of two women's prisons in Missouri. Tim worked for the Department of Corrections for over a decade and brings us a unique perspective today as a former CEO. So Tim, it's nice to meet you and thank you so much for being with us. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. Um, all right, so I have some general questions. There are so many issues in the Missouri Department of Corrections and you both have different perspectives. We are not gonna be able to touch on everything today, but I hope to touch on some of the things that rise to the top. And so to do that, I'm gonna start with you, Lori. Um, I was looking at your website this morning and it looks like one of the things that Missouri Prison Reform does is have a form for, I assume the loved ones and friends and family of incarcerated folks to bring issues to Missouri Prison Reform. Um, and so, gosh, I know those are continually probably changing, but if I were to ask you right now today, what is the top issue that you're seeing come in from people that are using that form? What would you say that it was? Um, there are so many issues. I think one of the biggest ones though is a lack of medical care for the loved ones inside the facilities um and that's something that we hear from people inside the prisons too a lot um probably the biggest issue that we hear from them lack of medication um lack of attention to serious medical issues um inability to see a provider um in a timely manner or sometimes at all People are told, you know, that they will be sent outside for treatment and they don't get sent out. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, there is a large number of deaths happening in our facilities. And um, a lot of people believe that that some of that is due to the lack of medical care. Also. So it's a big concern for us. I gotcha. Um, 
So Tim, I'll ask you from your perspective and please correct me if I was wrong. And um, you worked at Chilla Coffee. Have you worked at other facilities? Uh, yes, in my career, I worked at Chillicothe. I also worked at Western uh, Correctional Facility in my career as well, yes. Okay. And so is this a new issue? What are you seeing on the ground from inside? What are some of the particulars um, about the way medical is run that is problematic for folks? Uh, well, I will be upfront that I've been out of the prison system now for almost two years. Um, and in, in my career, I, I was a CO1 as well as some other positions. And things that I saw is medical obviously is a huge concern. Um, it's just kind of like on the streets. You want to go to the doctor, you're sick or something. You had the right inside of prison to do that. But with staffing shortages and, in my opinion, um, not really good medical personnel to begin with, um, offenders do have a lot of trouble getting proper care. And if they do get it, it does, they do have to wait quite a while to get that care. So medical, what I've seen in my career, is definitely a huge uh, issue in the prison system, and it's always not the the best care like you get on the street, is my opinion in the matter. Yeah, okay. Lori, what kind of things does Missouri prison reform do? So you get these complaints about medical. It's like so daunting. How are you, are you on the phone all the time with, with the facility? Like how does, um, how does Missouri prison reform help families address those problems they're having? Um, we have a few ways of doing that. Um, one way that people inside prisons really like is they can submit a letter to us or an email, and then we can put that on our blog just to help amplify their voices. Um, you know, they don't have a lot of opportunity to have their voices be heard. Um, I don't mess with facilities. <laughs> I don't call facilities. Um, Unfortunately, we've found that staff that work at facilities, no offense to him, um, are not real empathetic to situations. Um, and, and staffing shortages are awful right now in the prisons. And so when I have called facilities, I feel like those people are overwhelmed with what's happening inside, um, often um, misinformed don't know how to handle situations. So um, I have a contact administration that is a medical employee that can help with, with some situations, such as we were contacted by a man and his family both. He wasn't getting a medication he had been on for a while. And so I was able to reach out to that administration employee um, and she helped get him that medication back. So that's one way of dealing with the issues that we hear about. Yeah, that's great. So, so, so Missouri prison reform mainly. Do you mainly work with administration? You said you don't go in, go, don't deal with the facilities. So you have a contact, like if something happens in a property room or in medical or. Um. Yeah. Uh. We've been able to form a couple of good relationships in administration. I won't say you know, um, that a lot of administration likes to communicate with us, um, yeah. but. Yeah, um, I pretty much will contact those two people if I have an issue um, at a facility or otherwise. Yeah, because the people at the facilities just aren't um, extremely helpful. So. Yeah. And Tim, you mentioned something I think is really important to the equation. Tim, you said something really interesting when I think about the medical issues is and the wait time. Um, you mentioned staffing shortages and how that is impacting the wait time in medical I'm sure it's impacting a lot of other things uh, in the facilities, but what do you think from, from your position as an employee, 
I, I see jobs are open. I see that they're continually hiring. What do you see as some of the reasons that they're either not retaining or getting people that want to work in the Department of Corrections? Well, I do want to be clear. I am no longer a current employee of the Missouri Department of Corrections. I've been gone for two years now, but I did spend 13 years that just to be up front with your viewers and yeah. listeners. I'm not currently an employee. But what I did see in my time was uh, it, it's... <laughs> They can't recruit the right people and the kind of people they need to work here because, in my opinion, the admin and the people in Jeff City, on, to be honest with you, are horrible. They they are not qualified for these jobs. They treat people horribly. They act horribly. And people, no matter how much you pay them or what you're going to give them benefit-wise, they're not going to stick around when the environment is so bad. That's my honest opinion of why it's so bad across the state, why I can't get anybody to work there because they don't want to. Because the people that work for are just kind of jerks. That's my personal opinion from 13 years of service. That's the biggest problem. And when you have that kind of issue, you can't recruit quality people because people hear about it. They don't want to work there. I mean, that's that's how I think it is. Yeah. And you hear that in society. People don't leave jobs. They leave bosses. That's I mean, exactly that's, right. Yep. That, so it's not like a condemnation of the Department of Corrections. That's how it is when people can't retain employees. It's typically a, a leadership uh, a leadership issue. And I mean, I just can't imagine like the stress and, and everything involved, like anything with prisons is going to be extremely traumatizing, whether you're an incarcerated individual or you're going in there as a nurse, or even if you're just going in there as a chef or a cook or, or in whatever way, like it's, it is, you got to have a community, you have to have support at every single level. And so that is really unfortunate because what ultimately happens as we see is people don't get healthcare that they need. Um, they're falling through the cracks. I met Lori, I've met Lori, mainly started working with her during COVID in 2022, I would say, because of my work um, in the death penalty movement and just the lack of transparency and accountability around COVID deaths. Um, we did have an individual, Ricky D, uh, who was on death row, pass away from COVID. And so we had that knowledge. We knew that. And we were it wasn't matching up. We weren't finding what we needed on the website. Um, it, there was just a huge issue with accountability and transparency. So we started what ended up to become a series of town halls of different organizations and advocacy groups that were coming together to really amplify, address the issues of folks inside. And the common theme, whether it is medical or male or COVID, it is ultimately like the lives that are being lost um, from these tragic events. And so there's just so many variables that really play into them. Um, so I've been leaning on Lori, I guess, uh, for her data and a lot of her data on deaths. Missouri Prison Reform has been amazing about that. And I kind of want to turn the conversation um, to ask you, Lori, about, about that data. When did you start to gather that? Was it COVID? Were you working before? Like what made you start to um, question that and how how did you start gathering that date? Yeah, it really started during COVID. Um, we were getting reports from both um, residents of the prisons as well as staff that, you know, people were really sick, um, that people were dying, and that was not really being addressed by the Department of Corrections. Um, and so um, we started doing records requests to get that information. Eventually, the Department of Corrections did put some of that data on their website, wasn't updated correctly. Um, 
on a regular basis sometimes. Um, and again, we were hearing different stories from people inside the prisons um, that did not always match up with that data on the website. So um, we really started doing um, records requests for, for the deaths inside the prisons as well as COVID data. Um, since then, we've expanded that to overdoses because um, that's been a, a, an issue of concern um, for people inside and outside. Um, we do policy requests um, to help people stay informed. Um, we've done records requests for suicide attempts because at a certain time, those were up a little bit. Um, we really want some transparency and accountability from the Department of Corrections, and we feel like um, data is one way to do that. Yeah. Um, in summary, like, what are you finding with in regards to the number of deaths inside? Are they decreasing, increasing since COVID? Like, what what are we looking at here? Um, I was looking at some of the information before this, and in 2021, there were 102 deaths. In 2021, there were 102 deaths. Um, in 2022, there are 134. This year, so far, there have been 31. Um, and what was really concerning was from January 5th to January 28th of this year, there were 14 deaths in Department of Corrections facilities. Um, so 14 deaths in 20 or yeah, uh, 23 days, I guess that would have been. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Can um, they tell you the cause of death in the data? They give a very basic cause, like um, they'll get, they'll say whether it was natural homicide, accidental suicide, um, one of the executions or unknown, which is very alarming to me that there are deaths that they just mark as unknown. <laughs> okay. Never, never address. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned overdoses. So are those unknowns? How, how are we, how can we find out? Because we'll talk in a minute and a little bit about policies based on they're creating based on data they think they have, but like, how, how do we know about overdoses? So on the, on the log of deaths that they send us, um, an overdose um, that results in death would be marked as accidental. Um, okay. And that's kind of the only way we can tell. It's very basic information that they send us. Sometimes we can match up information with um, things we're told from people inside the prisons, um, both residents and staff. Um, we've even found um, we've even been told about some deaths that were not on the log. And then I had to then go back to the Department of Corrections and say, hey, we know this person passed away on this date. Um, and they went back and added it. But I don't know um, that they ever would have if we hadn't addressed that. So. Wow. And um, what is there? So you're right. Like there were so many 31 deaths this year, 14 in that short time frame. Maybe this is a question for Tim, but what is the, their policy of like reporting out that to the families? Like, and are the fam, you know, are the families being contacted? Is is that another issue in getting the transparency? How do they um, share that information out to loved ones? Um, to to my knowledge, when I was working in, in roles that dealt with that, when I, in my career. Um, let's say they had an offender who was really, really sick or something, like in the hospital, like off-site. Um, to my knowledge, like admin wouldn't notify the family and say, hey, they're pretty sick. You may want to get in contact, um, something like that. 
that they did pass away. Um, I know that in my experience, admin staff did contact the family, let them know they passed or whatever. Um, now, how quickly that happens or what the time frame is, that could always vary from site to site. Um, but I do know they were notified at some point of a death. But like I said, it may not be like a, as quickly as the family would like or whatever, but I think they were eventually notified, yes, ma'am. Okay. And during COVID, I mean, my eyes, uh, just my own bias and probably what most people are familiar with is what's happening in the men's prisons. Do you, did you see anything different? Like were the deaths different in the women's prisons? Was COVID handled like the same same way and, and have the same impact on women's facilities and men's facilities? Well, I know uh, during COVID, I was totally working at Chillicothe, the women's facility during okay. COVID. Um, now, how many deaths they had per COVID, I do not have a number for that. I am not, I don't want to say, I'm not certain of that. I know how they dealt with it, to be honest with you, was chaos. Um, at that time, I was what they call a thumb at the prison. So I was like middle management. And like every day, we'd have like a meeting like this on Zoom. And we'd have like all the like managers, like the admin team, and they're talking to people in Jeff City. It was, it was absolutely like almost embarrassing what these meetings were like. We'd ask a question. We want to know something. They'd be like, I don't know. We don't know. We don't know. There was like no direction or any kind of like what they wanted to do for a very long time. So people like us who are out in the field, you call like in the prison, working with these offenders and doing the stuff, we almost had very, I'm not saying no, but very little direction on what to do and how to handle things. So it's kind of like trial and error. And if you ask the question admin, they had no clue because they were listening to people in Jeff City who weren't even on site. So, and, I, and I'll say too, as, as a thumb, I was a middle management type employee there. And this is the absolute 100% true. For about 10 straight months, almost four hours twice a week. So basically eight hours a week, they would have me sitting at the front door taking people's temperatures, okay? Now, I'm not going to get into my background, my experience, stuff like that, but I promise you my experience is way better than taking somebody's temperature. And that's what I did for almost 10 months at the front door, like eight hours a week. So things like that that just make no sense, that's the kind of people you're dealing with here that's just absolutely why it's so bad at these prisons. Wow. So to, are you talking about like um, other COs when they came to work had to take their temperature? Are you talking about in the visiting room or? No, I, I'm talking about, I took the temperature of staff. I staff literally sat at the front door at a table with a handheld thermometer, okay. shot, shot it at their forehead and took their temperature. Yes, ma'am. And now I'm not saying that wasn't needed to do that. What I'm saying is they shouldn't have people of my level doing so. It's just kind of like a waste of time and money, in my opinion. Yeah, I think there was a lot of confusion around the policies and, you know, are masks required, aren't masks required. And I can't say that's unique to the DOC. Like our whole state was kind of in arrears <laughs> about what we were going to do with COVID. But we certainly saw the impact of it directly um, in the Department of Corrections with folks just like living in such close quarters and, and all of that stuff. So um, I'm I'm glad that you are doing that, but I also understand how completely frustrating that is. And just for our listeners, the FUM is the middle management you said, said that's a functional unit manager, is that correct? Yes, ma'am, it is. Okay, and so did you supervise other COs at that time? Yes, ma'am. Okay, 
So you were going to these meetings and you're supposed to come back and then be the leader to tell the other folks how to act. And you weren't getting any information to do to do fulfill that role, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, that's how it was supposed to work. And was there no information given? There was some, but it was definitely uh, not what you'd want for sure. It was just not enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, that those were really difficult times for employees and for folks living inside and the uncertainty I know for us out here that love people that are incarcerated and uh, waiting for visiting to come back and all of that stuff. So, you know, I'm glad that we've made it through that hump. Um, how do our desks look since COVID? Are they up or down, Lori? Are they um, they're about the same, I would say. Um... I actually was trying to look at that information before this and, uh, well, found some disturbing information. So um, I got a little distracted, but um, I would say it's about the same. Gotcha. And that's a little bit, that's quite interesting is, you know, that was, you would expect there to be a spike and then that's under control and it goes down and seems like it's just been replaced with other things like overdoses or lack of medical care. Um, Yeah, for sure. We uh, only have a couple minutes left on this half hour. So I, I'm going to wrap up this half hour. Now we're going to take a short break. Uh, you're listening to 90.1 KKFI Kansas City Community Radio. We will be back shortly. You are about to hear a paraphrased rendition of several conversations conglomerated into one. So there I was, listening to my old van and my new one. I just did it by donating my van to KKFI and they turned it into the programming I take with me everywhere I go. So no matter where I'm at on the planet, I tell my smart speaker to play KKFI or I'm cruising down the road in my new sweet ride, I've got KKFI and my old van going with me wherever I go. And I did it by going to kkfi.org. I found the support tab and learned how to donate my wheels. Thanks, KKFI. A huge thank you to everyone who's donated a car, boat, truck, van, or motorcycle to KKFI. And a future thanks to all of those who have yet to clean out their driveways. Now the calendar for the week of April 3rd. Legal Aid of Western Missouri can provide free legal assistance to low-income and vulnerable Jackson County homeowners who fall behind on their payments and face foreclosure. Interested individuals can call 816 816- Four seven four six seven five zero to apply. You can find Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense events at momsdemandaction.org. These are open to all, mothers and others. The Empower Missouri Week of Action is this week. Learn about opportunities at empowermissouri.org. Monday, April 3rd, between 6.45 p.m. and 8.45 p.m., the Kansas City Criminal Justice Task Force has a meeting via conference call. If you would like to join in, you can call 605-313-5573, and when asked for the code, enter 454777. Tuesday, April 4th, is your chance to vote in the primary for the Kansas City, Missouri City Council. Tuesday, April 4th, 9 a.m., the 2023 Kansas Wealth Day is at the Kansas State Capitol, 300 Southwest 10th, Topeka, Kansas. 
Kansas Wealth Day of Advocacy and Education brings together organizations, advocates, and legislators to connect on water, energy, air, land, transportation, and health. You can join Kansans to learn about and advocate for wealth in Kansas at the first in-person Wealth Day at the Capitol since 2020. Tuesday, April 4th, 6.45 p.m., the Community Ramadan Dinner with Good Faith Network is at 10211 Knoll Avenue, Overland Park, Kansas. Dialogue Institute of Kansas City asks us to celebrate Ramadan all together. It's the month of mercy, compassion, and unity. More info at ArabAmerica.com. Thursday, April 6th at 5 p.m. is the Community Justice Coalition virtual meeting. The CJC is a multi-sector team of dedicated advocates who envision a future without mass incarceration. Access info at empowermissouri.org. Saturday, April 8th, 10.30 a.m. to 8 p.m. is the Pow Wow and Indigenous Cultures Festival at the Lead Center, 1600 Stewart Drive, Lawrence, Kansas. Schedule and more information at fnsapowwow.ku.edu. Saturday, April 8th, noon to 2 p.m., mothers of incarcerated sons and daughters invite you to their monthly session at PlexPod Westport Commons, centrally located on the bus line, easy to find at 300 East 39th Street, Annex A Meeting Room. More info at misdkc.org. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. That's updated daily. Please, take care of yourselves and others. Thanks to all our listeners. Stay close to your dial and stay well. Welcome back. Thanks for being with us this morning. My name is Elise Max. You're listening to Jaws of Justice on KKFI Kansas City Community Radio. This morning, we're speaking with Lori Curry of Missouri Prison Reform and Tim Wallace, a former CO in the Missouri Department of Corrections. During the first half hour, we've been talking about um, issues with transparency and accountability, specifically around obtaining data related to deaths inside during uh, COVID and how that uh, those numbers might have changed today. Um, and so for the second half hour of the show, I want to pivot a little bit I still want to talk about the data, um, but I want to talk specifically about, an, an, I don't know if it's a more recent issue, but um, an issue that's risen to the top since the COVID deaths um, have started to decrease or have decreased um, is the issue with overdoses. And I'm particularly interested in talking about overdoses because they are impacting policy um, decisions that the department is making that's really impacting um, the way that we out here can interact with the people that we know inside. So um, I guess, Lori, can you maybe fill us in a little bit of background on um, the issue with overdoses and the policy around mail, how that's how that been how that's changed pretty recently. I think it was in July, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Overdoses were something we were already tracking. Um, We were getting data from the Department of Corrections through records requests, but um, we started hearing that they were going to take away physical mail. Other states have done this also. Um, So um, they implemented it last July, um, July 1st. 
And so now if I want to send someone in prison um, physical mail, I have to actually send it to Florida. It gets scanned in and then it is sent to a tablet that the people in prison have. Um, and the Department of Corrections really has um, blamed this new policy um, on drugs, drugs in the prisons. Um, and so we started paying really close attention to this, um, the overdose numbers after the, the physical mail stopped. Um, because with all the people that I have talked to in prison, whether that be someone that lives in a prison or um, a staff member, um, if they're being honest, the vast majority of drugs in prisons is not coming in through the mail. Um, I won't say that none of it is or was, um, but a lot of it is coming in through people that work in prisons. Um, some of it does come in through visiting, um, but I, I think we all feel like for them to take away physical mail was such a punishment to us um, to children, to people inside who maybe can't see their kids, um, you know, can't um, visit with their families always, things like that, um, punishing the wrong group of people when, when the Department of Corrections knows very well how the majority of drugs is coming inside. So we continue tracking that information through most of last year. Um, the actual, the highest, um, the month with the highest amount of overdoses last year was um, September. So um, two months after the mail stopped coming in, um, I will say that we have not gotten records on overdoses since October of last year. Um, the Department of Corrections didn't send us any and is now saying they don't have to anymore. Um, they're saying that the only place that those records are kept are in medical records and they don't have to provide us with medical records, which is true. But I want to also point out that that's extremely concerning if, if the Department of Corrections themselves is not keeping track of overdoses because their medical provider is a, a separate entity. So that's really interesting. So just to make sure that I heard that all correctly. So they changed the mail policy in July because they thought drugs were coming in through the mail. And from the data you're seeing, there had been an increase in overdoses since implementing the new mail policy. Correct. The lowest, the lowest month as far as overdoses was February of last year. And the highest month through October was actually September. So two months after physical mail stopped coming into prisons. Okay. Wow. And do you know offhand when you say the highest number, are we talking about handful of people, a dozen people, what's, what's the impact? I believe that number was in the thirties. Like it was over 35 people, I believe. That's yeah. That's February, crazy. February only had 14 people overdose. Um, I mean, I don't want to say only, but you know, compared to the other numbers, February was, was pretty low. Um, but yeah, September had the highest amount. And just for clarity, these are overdoses that result in death, not just overdoses, or is this any time an overdose results in medical attention being needed? Yeah, it's it's any overdose. It's not necessarily okay. one that results in death. So these are just any time somebody overdoses um, and requires medical attention. Okay. Um, well, Tim, of course, I want to ask you what you are seeing on the ground um, with the drugs and overdoses. Like, do do you do you agree with the Department of Corrections that mail would be the way to stop it? Or were you guys on the ground being a thumb 
trying to intervene in and in other ways, visiting room and things like that. Um, well, it's my experience and um, my personal experience, in my opinion, physical mail for offenders, in my opinion, is pretty important. It's kind of like getting a Christmas card here on the street for the holidays, a picture, a letter, something from a family member that's like, you know, from the heart and, and handwritten. That's a pretty important thing. And I guess at this point, that's pretty much stopped, which my opinion is I don't agree with that. That's what they decide to go. Um, you know, also the DOC, like in the academy and in yearly training, staff is like taught, you know, don't get friendly with offenders. Don't bring stuff into offenders. Don't do X, Y, and Z. And that's obviously a problem for decades in, in corrections. And they train staff not to do it. But obviously, that doesn't always work. And staff doesn't always adhere to that. And, of course, there's been documents of probably a thousand cases that not adhering to that. And I think it goes back to reasons that they're not hiring the right kind of people. Their training's not that good. All these are the reasons why this stuff keeps happening, why they have all these drugs getting in when they shut down mail. I mean, that's kind of a common sense thing just to realize what's going on. Um, like I said, the, the COC does train not to do those things, but people have to buy into it. And obviously a lot of people, in my opinion, aren't. So. Yeah, thank you for that. And I mean, Lori's words were that it was a it's a punishment. They're punishing folks. Do you have any examples through like maybe your contact form of trying to just let our listeners know um, like a specific instance and like exactly how it impacts familial relationships when they can't have physical mail? Well, I mean, I. Well, I, like I said, I've been gone for two years. I, I worked a lot of my prison in the women's prison. A lot of my career was in a female prison. Um, females, in my opinion, they want pictures of their kids. They want letters. They want Christmas cards. Like, I'm not saying men and women are, uh, they are different, of course, but women really like that kind of like, uh, you know, physical kind of intimate thing from their family to get those cards and letters and pictures. And I have seen, you know, many pictures denied, many letters denied over my career just for various reasons. And I know it does affect the female offenders where, you know, they get sad, depressed. They don't like that. And I do understand, of course, from some point, but there is some safety and security reason not to let I mean, I get, you know, when drugs come through the mail, but I'm not saying you know, it's just common sense. Not, not, not every piece of mail has drugs in office. That's crazy to think like that. So if you just shut it out all together, I think you're really kind of hurting these you know, women offenders not getting that, you know, kind of contact with their families and kids and stuff. Yeah. I think about my kids' school pictures and stuff and being able to hold them or pull it out of my wallet. I mean, the laptop, the the uh, tablet, like, what if it breaks? Or how do you, what if you have to get a new one? How do you assure those are transferred over? So, yeah. Lord, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah. Um, a couple of things. I... I share a story often of somebody that I know who um, was pregnant when her husband went to prison and um, he has never met their child. And so she would trace their child's hand and send those pictures in to him. Um, and of course he can no longer get those. And that's just one example of, you know, why physical mail is so important to people. Um, also, I am told frequently how um, people inside have pictures of loved ones <clears throat> that are no longer with us. Um, people have passed on and things happen to pictures in prison. Um, sometimes staff will tear up a picture. People lose pictures. Things get spilled on pictures. And 
you know, they can't receive those anymore. If somebody sends them a picture, it's going to get put on a tablet. Like it's just not the same thing as having a physical picture of somebody, especially someone that you've lost. Definitely. Definitely. I'm curious on whether if overdoses, you know, go down to zero for a whole year, they'll give that, give mail back. It doesn't seem like they would, but I mean, that's how we're seeing, you know, a policy that is being created maybe out of, yeah, to, to, to address the situation might not actually be the best policy to address the situation because the more someone feels alienated from their family, as we know, the less they're going to be encouraged to rehabilitate or be motivated, you know, to want to wake up sometimes. So that's a really tough issue. Um, yeah, yeah, really I'm tough. Sorry, issue. I'm, gonna, I'm sorry, I'm going to say real quick. I'm trying to break in, but my opinion is if you're going to take that big of an action against an offender to basically stop all physical mail. In my opinion, you, you need to do the same thing with visitors. They need to be checked better, screened better, and the same thing with staff when they come to work. If they're not being screened that tough or looked at that tough, then you've kind of taken one approach that's all you've kind of done. And in my opinion, that's bad. You need to do it across the board as hard as you're going to do it as you did with the offender's mail. Yeah. What are uh, what are some other ways beside mail? I know that there have been several excuses. I think that there was like a bag of tobacco found or like what are other ways that they believe mail that drugs are getting in? Oh, you know, um, <laughs> I apologize. You know, the Department of Corrections has given a wide range of ways that drugs are supposedly getting in, including catapults. Um, that was that was given by the Department of Corrections. People are supposedly using catapults to flip drugs into the prisons. But I, I do want to say I agree with Tim. As a visitor at a prison, I'm very limited on what I can take in a prison. Um, I walk through a metal detector. The clear bag that I take in to visit gets run through an x-ray machine. And these staff members are now required, I think, to bring clear bags in if they bring their, their belongings inside. But I see this one staff member bring a clear backpack in that's packed full of stuff. There are plenty of places that that person could hide drugs. They can hide drugs in their pockets, in their shoes, socks. If they really want to stop drugs from getting into their facilities, I agree that staff need to be searched better also. Yeah. I mean, I guess people can get pretty creative if they want to get drugs in. I read the article with catapults. I think I saw drones um, was another way they believe that they were getting in. So, Yeah, and my issue... Sorry, I would say in my experience, I've never seen a catapult or a drone drop drugs okay. in prison. I was there 13 <laughs> years, so I'm just saying. Thanks, Fair. Tim. Thank you for validating that. Um, I will say there is a law in Missouri that was passed a few years ago, um, and the DOC really advocated for that law to be passed where you can't fly drones around a prison. However, um, there is one, at least one DOC facility that uses um, on their Facebook page um, pictures taken by staff, um, taken with a drone. So staff can fly drones around prisons, um, but no one else can. That, yeah, so. that's very, very interesting. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I know we're not going to have all the time in the world, um, but I am an abolitionist. So instead of focusing all on the problems, I want to take a moment just to like envision 
what a better system could look like if it's even a system. So I, I have the same question for both of you and I'm gonna ask um, Lori first, um, but if you <laughs> could take a magic wand and wave it and fix one thing for folks living inside. I know it's such a hard question. If Tim wants to answer first, you're welcome to Tim. What would it be? What would be the one thing that you would change to make it a better place for people that are living in this system? I can go first. Okay. Um, I know that the Department of Corrections likes to talk about that there are plenty of opportunities for rehabilitation inside their facilities. Um, um, I feel pretty safe in saying that that's not true um, from a lot of different sources. Um, obviously, people living inside prisons, um, especially now that there are so many staffing issues, um, classes get canceled. Um, and all kinds of classes, educational, therapeutic, um, you know, people can't. Last night, um, a class at one of the facilities got, got shut down early. Um, there are nights where um, a, an instructor comes to the facility and wants to teach and they turn them away saying they don't have enough staff to let these people go get an education. So um, I think that, that people, I really want people to understand that um, there are not nearly as many opportunities for healing and rehabilitation inside these prisons as um, the state would like people to believe. Okay, thank you for that. Um, Tim, what do you think could be a solution? What would be your top um, thing to fix if you could fix anything? I mean, obviously prison is a, you know, it's not a good environment. It's, it's negative a lot. It could be dangerous. It's just a bad place for a lot of people wow. to be. That's just the history of a prison. But I really think if there was, and this is pretty simple, but if there's more respect, I'm talking re respect from staff to offenders, offenders to staff, and literally staff to staff. If you have respect inside a prison where it's, you know, it's legitimate and it's honest and it's heartfelt, respect goes a long way. And I think if you had that respect, there'll be a lot more positive change and positive things that come from being inside a prison. But still you get that respect from admin to staff, to offenders to staff, staff to offender, just kind of up the board full of respect. You're going to have these problems for a very long time. Thank you. Those are, are great uh, answers. Um, so I want to know, Lori, from you, what does the future hold? for NPR, tell our listeners how they can connect with you, how they can find you, how they can support your work. Yeah, um, our website is moprisonreform.org. Um, you can get in touch with us there. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, and we you can support us in all kinds of ways. Um, we have merchandise for people to buy um, that would help us financially. Donations would help us a great deal, but also just being involved in, in events that we hold. Um, you know, we do different kinds of trainings. We did a legislative kind of um, way to connect with your, your um, elected officials training. Um, it was very basic, but I think it helped people out. Um, yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. So moprisonreform.org. 
I know that you have a weekly or monthly newsletter, um, which I'm really looking forward to the next edition because we have a, uh, you're about to launch video visitation. And so I think you're going to cover that topic in your next newsletter. So I just encourage folks to check out Missouri Prison Reform. Um, and I really want to thank you both for being with me today um, for caring for people that live in Missouri correctional facilities um, and just for the work that you're doing. So thank you both so much. Thank you, Elise. Thank you. I, I thank you very much for having me on the show, Lori, and you guys. Thank you. And I'm going to tell you straight up, I've done this type of work for over 20 years now, um, and I have no problem speaking the truth. Okay, I don't care mm -hmm. if it's about it, who thinks I'm a jerk, who thinks I'm being <laughs> out of line. It doesn't matter to me. I'm going to tell you what I've seen, what I've seen, and how it is. It doesn't, and they can't do anything to me. So it's, it's good, you know what I'm saying? So you ever need me again, you want to talk to me, I'm more than happy to. Hope I, hope I wasn't too negative for you, but I'm going to speak the truth, and I really don't care. So <laughs> appreciate it. Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Thanks, Kim. Bye. 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 Good afternoon. This is Brother Kalfani Malik Chowdoum, Indiana Political Prison, Indiana Voice of the Voices, calling in from Woodsville Correctional Unit. I have an uh, open letter to my grandchildren that I would like to share to the, with the people in the Revolutionary Mathis. Real Black Love, a message to my grandchildren. My loving grandchildren, I pray that my words reach your hands to find that each of you are all doing fine. I have never spent a single, spent a single day in the free world with any of you. When my son Dion, y'all father, was born, I was just coming to prison at a young age of 17. I am now fighting with all of my might to get out of here so that I can play a positive and qualitative role in each of your lives. My love for you is real, and I have loved you from the day you all were born. I will never stop loving any of you, so please don't forget that. I recently sent my love, Zion, and Jalay some money, and I'll be sending the rest of you some money as the days come. Grandchildren, I think that you, and I think of you every day, hoping that your mothers are being responsible and ensuring that you all are safe and healthy out there. I am looking forward to when I can come home together and be as one big loving family under the same roof, laughing and having fun like a grandfather is supposed to do with his grandchildren. I respect your mothers for being single mothers out there in this country raising my son's grandchildren. But I am disappointed that none of them kept their word and their promise made to me the day I spoke to them on your father's funeral. They promised to keep you all in my life. Now, that's what I can't respect because they didn't keep their word. Children, I am sure you all miss your father. He was my only son, and yes, I miss him like crazy as well. King Dion created six beautiful blessings from God. So we keep your father's legacy alive inside of us by taking care of one another, by never forgetting to express how much we love one another. 
by being good to the people around us who we know are responsible for your well-being. The people who are responsible for Dion being not being here with us any longer are being punished by God as we speak. I used to call your Nana Kim to get updates on all of you. I have stopped calling her now because of some inconsistencies with her boyfriend having a complex at me calling, so I stopped doing that. But I will start to reach out to each one of you and call you, you know, probably every two weeks to check up on you and make sure that each one of you are developing well and doing good in school. I want to start a correspondence with each and every one of you when the time is right. I will express to your parents how they can set up an account on www.gtl.com under my name, Leonard McQuay, 874304. Once it's done, we all can stay in contact by email and messaging. Heaven, you are the oldest of my grandchildren. So I am going to put you in charge and hope that you will stay in touch with me by letting me know how your little sisters and your little brother Chris are hanging on. Y'all take care of yourselves and I want y'all to know that I love y'all and I cherish every day the love that y'all have shared with me. You are all special. You are my son's children, so you are my children as well. I have embraced you with my love, my concern, so stay strong. Keep holding on to each other. Stay in touch with one another, and I will do my best to take care of y'all from, from where I'm at now. Whatever y'all need, y'all reach out to me, and I will do my best to send whatever it is that y'all need. Take care, I love you, and you will always be my family. Your grandfather, Brother Calfani Malik Caldoon, also known as to you, your grandfather Leonard. I love y'all, and take care. These commentaries are recorded by Prison Radio. Icy wind burns and scars Rushes in like a fallen star Through the narrow space between these bars Looking down on prison
you back to Bible black Then you'll find your love Some folks have to die too hard Some folks have to cry too hard Take one last look at the prison yard Goodbye prison deal at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now's the time to get in. enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guest of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you 
Our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Chains CD. 